Okay, welcome to another episode of Max Planck Florida's uh, Neurotransmissions podcast. We have a very special episode today. Um, my name is Misha. I am back after a hosting hiatus. Uh, I am here with a first time, uh, time. co-host, uh, Ingo Gotthard. And um, he is a grad student here at the Empress program, which is a com uh, combined uh, graduate school program we have between um, Max Planck in Florida and Max Planck in the uh, uh, society in Germany. So I encourage anybody to check it out because it's a very unique opportunity. Um, but we also have a, uh, a very special speaker here today, um, coming from, uh, uh, UC Berkeley. Um, so welcome to, uh, Stefan Lamel. Um, uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, hi, hi, Misha. Hi, Ingo. Uh, thanks for having me here. It's a great pleasure to be here. And yeah, I look forward to my interactions with the students and faculty today. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, Dr. Lamel, he's the uh, Empress invited speaker. Uh, the graduate students got together and decided that uh, you are a particularly interesting person uh, to come and uh, get to get to talk over here. Um, so thank you for coming. Um, you study the circuitry behind uh, Melton, uh, mental illness. Um, and you do this be, by studying motivation, reward pathways. So can you uh, kind of get us started on a, a, a sort of a broad picture of what your research is? Yeah, so actually we are very much interested in the dopamine system. And so as you probably know, dopamine neurons have been involved in, in many different neuropsychotic diseases. For example, Parkinson, drug addiction, and other illnesses that are associated with deficits in motivated behavior. And I actually started working on the dopamine since my PhD already. And so since then, what we basically found is that dopaminergic neurons are not a homogeneous population. They, they are very diverse neurons with very different molecular properties, electrophysiological properties. And a lot of, of what we now now points to the idea that dopamine cells, based on where they projection, projection in the brain, they have very specific function and, and very different uh, properties. And so we are very much interested in understanding how these cells are embedded in neural circuits. And can we identify sub circuits within the dopamine system that subserve specific functions? And by doing this, we hope that ultimately we get a deeper understanding of mental illnesses in which these neurons are involved. Currently, the major problem we have in, treat in the treatment of many neuropsychotic diseases is that the treatments are not very specific. They have a lot of side effects. And what we think it's due to that most of these treatments, they interact with the entire dopamine system. They are not specific. For example, if you think about Parkinson's disease, we treat the patients with levodopa. So we basically give them dopamine, but dopamine receptors are expressed all over the brain. And that's why we have a lot of side effects also of the, of the Parkinson disease treatment. Or the same cases for schizophrenia. So D2 antagonists are still a very popular treatment in, in schizophrenia. But there are a lot of side effects. For example, uh, the patients develop Parkinson disease-like symptoms. So what we think if we can figure out a way of how we can target specific dopamine subpopulations, then we might have a chance of figuring out more specific and 
more effective treatments for all of these diseases. So if we're talking about subpopulations, I mean, mm -hmm. let's say we're talking about the ventral tank ventral area, mm -hmm. right? The, the sort of uh, epicenter of dopamine activity mm -hmm. um, that you're looking at. Uh, when you're talking about targeted treatments, are you saying that um, the future should be more about developing drugs that are specific to individual types of dopamine receptors? Or are we supposed, uh, mm -hmm. do you want to develop things like deep brain stimulation, for example, that's being used in uh, more mm -hmm. specific uh, uh, ways in Parkinson's, mm -hmm. for for example, to alleviate side effects and, and to keep the sort of window of drug activity open for longer periods of time. I mean, is, is it drugs or is it something else? We are addressing the topic from both angles. So we are interested in identifying, for example, specific ion channels that are expressed only in one population, but not the others. If we can identify them, then that the idea would be to interact with pharmaceutical companies, for example, to figure out more specific treatments. However, the work we are doing is also focused on neural circuits that, that we can think of, of figuring out more specific brain regions or maybe specific subregions we can target, for example, with deep brain stimulation. So particularly the interesting thing about dopamine cells is that we have found that these in the ventral tegmental area, these different dopamine subpopulations, they are, for example, located in different subregions of the ventral tegmental area. So, and, and we think that this anatomical distinction between the subpopulations, even though we might, we only work in mice, might be able to translate it also to humans uh, because the dopamine system seems to be well conserved across different species. Even in flies, we find these different dopamine subpopulations that are anatomically separated. So you can think about that if, if we can define a specific subregions more specifically in the brain, for example, on an anatomical level, this information may be helpful for even for neurosurgeons that target their specific deep brain stimulation to more specific sites. Mm -hmm. More recently, we got very interested in the nucleus accumbens, and we found also there that there are particular subregions within the nucleus accumbens that are involved in very different dopamine-associated functions. And, and this might be, again, another information because deep, in deep brain stimulation, the nucleus accumbens is already a target. And so we think if, if we define the function of dopamine in these different subregions, this information might serve on both angles, either pharmacological by really characterizing these cells out based on their molecular identity and ion channel functions, but also on the neural circuit level. So both angles might be useful for future treatments. When you talk about the dopamine system and different circuits, um, can you explain a little bit more in detail what the link is between uh, circuitry and uh, you know, the dopamine system and, and generalized mood disorders such as major depressions? Mm -hmm. uh, so so the, the idea is that dopamine cells are not doing all the same. They, they do, they, for example, in depression, what might be the case that there are different populations that respond differently to chronic stress, which we know is a major trigger for major depression. And so some cells might become hyperactive, they might fire more. And so there's a very nice work from Eric Nessler left after social defeat stress, that there are certain dopamine populations that might fire more. But it might be the case that other cells become less active. We don't really know yet which, based on their projection, which cells become more active or less active. But it's clear that, for example, in major depression, dopamine cells have, have a very important role. 
So it seems like dopamine has uh, a, a big role in lots of different disorders. Uh, and the dopamine system is essentially very widespread throughout the brain. Um, uh, in the circuitry level, there are lots of different circuits that are involved in dopamine. And a lot of them have uh, sort of uh, various dysfunctions when it comes to uh, dysfunctions of the brain. So how do you study this? What, what are the sort of techniques that you use to approach this problem? Yeah, so I started basically working on the dopamine system, mostly using anatomical uh, techniques with retrograde tracing. So really define very nicely dopamine cells based on their projection target. So simply speaking, you can inject a, a retrograde tracer into a specific projection target, and then you label the cells based on where they specifically project to in the brain. And then you can perform like electrophysiological studies, you can perform molecular studies, perform RNA-seq on identified cells, for example, but everything based on their specific projection target. And so that's basically our bread and butter technique, retrogradly labeling, identifying cells on their projection target. More recently, and that's due to my postdoctoral work in the lab of Rob Malenka, we started doing uh, optogenetics. And so when I was a postdoc at Stanford, I interacted very closely with Carl Dyserot, who at that time just started working on, on optogenetics. And I became interested in using these techniques to identify or figure out function of specific inputs to dopamine cells. So, so another major approach we use in the lab is optogenetic to specifically manipulate inputs or projection targets of dopamine cells to see if we, again, if we can identify circuits based on their function and what they are doing in a freely moving animals. Another technique which we recently started, which, which I think is a very nice approach is fiber photometry, where you can measure basically fluorescence, calcium transients, or more recently do using a dopamine sensor, you can measure dopamine release in different projection targets and then identify the, the information which is encoded in different subtypes of dopamine cells. And so th these are basically the standard approaches. So we com compare a lot of uh, experiments in freely moving animals and using calcium imaging approaches, uh, fiber photometry, as I said, optogenetics, slice physiology. We, we, use, we started to use some in vivo electrophysiological experiments from optotech neurons, that, that, which I think is also a very nice approach specifically in combination with fiber photometry. Uh, so the, the general approach is that you see um, a certain population of neurons, mm -hmm. uh, population of dopamine neurons usually, and you know that they're uh, perhaps related to some kind of disorder, some kind of dysfunction. There's either a hyperactivity or a, a dampened activity. Mm -hmm. um, and then your strategy is to figure out where those neurons are projecting to, to mm -hmm. figure out what the other areas involved might be um, and what is projecting uh, to those areas. Yeah. Um, to build this entire circuit. Yeah, so also I have to say right now we are more uh, focused on the physiology, not so much on how the circuit changes in disease. We all have this idea in the back of our minds, but since there's so much we don't know yet about these different dopamine subpopulation, we really thought it's, it's more advantageous if we really figure out what the circuits are doing first before we start to looking onto them in a disease state and manipulating. So would you would you describe your research as uh, basic uh, research or as a, as applied uh, research? Uh, yeah, fundamentally, I think we are yeah. a very basic research uh, lab. 
However, since it's, but on grants, it's applied. It's, I think it's, I have it always in the back of my mind because my basic training is a pharmacist. So I always think about something and this really motivated me to go into neuroscience as basically in, in all the, as we all know, mental illnesses is a major problem in our society. And so it, it's, I always have in the back of my mind, how, ca how can we figure out new treatments? How do these circuits basically malfunction in disease? So although I, I focus mostly on understanding how the circuit work, in the back of my mind is always the idea is basically what happens in disease. Can we figure out new targets? Can we figure out new treatments? And so it's, it's always an idea which I have in my mind. Yeah. So you would say one of the greatest challenges, and I think we talked about it earlier a little bit, but uh, with your pharmacy background, you would say that one of the greatest challenges in pharmacology today is to actually identify specific targets um, and then how can we implement that in a, I want to say non-invasive mm. way in, in humans. Would you agree with that? Or do you have, you know, other yeah. opinions on what are the greatest challenges today? No, I think that these new techniques, which, which has been developed over the last decade, basically, including optogenetics, they offer a huge new potential for understanding how neural circuits work and might lead to a new, new treatments of diseases. And so, so yeah, I think there's a tremendous advantage of using these techniques to understand how circuits work and then think about what happens in the disease state. Mm -hmm. So this is a, um, it, it's surprising because particularly your background as a, uh, as a pharmacy, uh, researcher, right? Uh, it's, it's sort of, um, canonically the opposite approach, right? So uh, pharmaceutical development has always been a top-down effort of, okay, here's a drug, let's try it and see who it works on, right? Um, and that hasn't changed all that much in the past 40 years, 60 years. Uh, so did you, uh, is that how your research started? Did you sort of get fed up with that uh, idea of not understanding how everything works and you wanted to work from the bottom up? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, as, as you probably know, there hasn't been much innovation in the treatment of mental illnesses over, over the last decades, basically. So over the last 50 years, there haven't been any new major innovations in the treatment of depression. Uh, more recently, ketamine has been a, a big plus, I think, and, and a, a new way of treating depressed patients and patients with depression. And But generally, there hasn't been much 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 advancement and that might be a reason because if you look into those pharmaceutical companies a lot moved away from research in neuroscience and so but this was not really the reason why I came into neuroscience research so as, as we already talked about I started my career as a pharmacist yeah and uh, and I was always very interested in medical research and in medicine and so well, once I became a, a pharmacist, basically, I, I worked in, in a pharmacy. So in Germany, we have a system like, like here in the US, where you have to do participate in a kind of a residency program where you actually work in a pharmacy for half a year. And this is what I did, but I found it not really exciting. So it was a very repetitive work. And so after a short time, I realized this is not really what I want to do in my life. And so... At, at that point, I, I, I looked for other directions. And fortunately, I, I met a, a pretty young professor who just moved his lab from Oxford University back to Germany. His name was uh, Jochen Röper. 
And so he was working on dopamine, specifically on Parkinson's disease. He wanted to understand the differential vulnerability. Why are there some dopamine cells that degenerate in Parkinson's disease while others do not degenerate? So I, I was very much an, an interested in, in this topic. And I basically asked him if I can join his lab for a PhD. And luckily he, he, he accepted me into his lab and I did first a master's with him and then later my PhD. And I became so interested in, in re basic research working on dopamine that very basically it carried throughout my whole career, so my PhD and then my postdoc, which, which I did at Stanford University with Rob Malenka, where, where I continue to work on the dopamine system. And now in my lab, we, we basically never have lost the idea of understanding this diversity of dopamine. So, so it basically started all with one question within my, within my PhD and it's still, it's still ongoing. So would you say we're getting closer to, I mean, like you said, right, for the past 50 years or so, there's been very little change in uh, the way um, drugs for uh, uh, mood disorders um, work, right? There, we've, we've had minor improvements, sure, but the general chemistry, the, the general methods of action are the same and we still have um, terrible side effects. Are we getting to the point where basic research is good enough, cheap enough and efficient enough that it might it is going to start making a bigger difference uh, to how drugs are developed. I mean, are pharmaceutical companies becoming more interested in this kind of work? Yeah, I, I think what's 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 happening nowadays is that there has been more interaction between basic researchers and pharmaceutical companies. So basically what I think is what what they might be doing is that they say uh, let's interact with basic researchers and form very productive interactions between pharmaceutical industry and basic researchers. Because you guys are doing much better basic research than we do, but we are really good at developing drugs. So maybe a more effective and more productive way is if we interact together. And so, and, and I think that might be a, a new direction to, to research in general between this interaction between pharmaceutical companies and, and basic researchers. So th this is a kind of new model. And I've seen this a lot in Germany, for example, Merck is very much interested in, in these interaction, bringing in basic researchers, letting them talk to senior piece, uh, persons in the, in the industry in order to come up with new, new ideas and uh, strategies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just mentioned Merck mm -hmm. as a as a company that that is involved in this kind of research and interaction between, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical side and the basic research. Uh, I I read on your CV that you won the uh, Merck Innovation Cup. Um, could you explain to us a little bit what what this is? What what is this cup about? And mm -hmm. then how you came about winning this cup? How was your experience? Yes, sure. Uh, the Merck Innovation Cup, I think is, is a great program. The first time I participated in it in 2011, when I was still a postdoc at Stanford. So I applied to this program and it, it's a very nice program where Merck brings in basically very young researchers at the level of graduate students and postdocs. And so they interact with more senior personnel in, in Merck. And over uh, a week, they work very intensively on an idea or project idea, which is related to Merck's pipeline and what they are interested in it. And so you basically have access to all the resources from Merck. You work with their patent lawyers, you, you have access to their pipeline, what they're working on. 
and you basically work in a team in a very diverse team where everyone has a very different background on on one one very interesting project idea and at the end you present this to senior management of Merck and then the winner basically were were the uh, the senior management thinks this is the best worked out ideas, then you win the innovation cup. And so because I like this idea so much, I participated again last year in the anniversary edition of the Merck Innovation Cup, where then I acted as a coach. So I worked together with a, with a young team and uh, we basically worked on an idea, which is very different from what I'm working on usually is on how do we deal with the plastic problem? How can we recycle plastic and find new sources, uh, basically new ways of effectively recycling plastics? And so very different from my day-to-day -day life, but I, I really enjoyed it working with young people on very innovative ideas and really doing brainstorming with them and developing an idea from the very beginning to the end to a presentation. And then we pitched it very successfully to a senior management team. And yeah, we won the Innovation Cup and, and I, I thought it was a great experience and I can recommend everyone to apply to this. So basically they have it on an annual basis. I think there's currently applications open. Look into it, just Google Merck Innovation Cup and it, it's shown online how you can apply. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, so uh, from what I understand, so in my field, we have hackathons where you get a bunch of programmers in a really sweaty room uh, for uh, a couple of days sometimes. And it's the same idea, right? They're given this task and, and they have to build to, uh, build a group where they have complementary skills, basically. Um, and they have this question they need to answer and they win a prize at the end. Um, yeah, it's but very stressful. It's like it's, basically one week full power, right? That's basically right. But more than 12 hours so, a day. So I can visualize this in a programming setting, but for something like um, uh, a research question, what is the level of uh, sort of, I, you know, I'm assuming you're not doing experiments over the five days, right? No, you work very intensively with literature and with the experiences of Merck personnel, basically. And then you basically form a presentation of this. You have an idea and... And as you know, there's a lot of literature out there, right? And sometimes it just takes to put a little puzzle pieces together and uh, very interesting research projects develop. And in this case, if Merck is later interested in it, they will give you, provide you with the resources to really make this happening. And they already implemented a lot of the research projects that were pitched at this Innovation Cup. And actually right now, based on the project, we have been doing as they were hiring a new postdoc, basically really tries to implement the idea basically we came up with. And, and so there's always a potential that the idea, even in this a very, very short time uh, that has been developed is really made into the, in, into, into reality. And I think that's, that's the strength of working with pharmaceutical company that they have the power to really make it happening. And, so it was always very surprising. That's why I like this program so much that within a short time, it's unbelievable if you bring in the right people together, how much they can really make happening within a short time. As you mentioned, the hackathon, it's, 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 it's a very similar approach, but it's really, it's, it's, yeah, it's every time, every year it amazes me and that is with highly motivated people, putting them together in a room, giving them resources, giving basically, and 
they make unbelievable ideas and innovations happening. So do you think this way of linking research maybe or researchers with pharmaceutical companies is one of the better ways to actually bring them together rather than, for example, having uh, in-house basic research in a pharmaceutical company or having uh, interactions of pharmaceutical companies with independent researchers at, for example, universities. So um, circling back to you know, the, the interaction between uh, basic research and pharmaceutical. Uh, from your experience at this cup, do you think this is a, a good model to kind of uh, start you know, developing basic ideas of how to meet and tackle unmet needs in, in medical science and treatments? Yeah, I think that it's a very innovative way. And, and I think there has been a lot of push also from the pharmaceutical into industry into this direction. At least now as a, as a PI, I, I see that there are a lot of openings and grant applications where basically where you can apply for small startup funding from the pharmaceutical industry. And then you, you work out a project which, where they have some interest and you have some interest. And so it's all based on mutual interest, right? And, and so I, I think as, as, as we all know, NIH funding is very difficult. As I think it's a, it's a great way of finding new ways of funding where, uh, where there's a lot of potential between interaction. Mm-hmm. So uh, for, uh, I just wanna uh, finish up with the American Innovation Cup because I think it's such a great idea and I really like that you're plugging it. Um, if people, uh, because uh, you know, there's always a lot of grad students listening um, who I assume are thinking, my PhD is going okay, but how do I make the switch to industry? Um, so things like this, a great way to make contacts. And also I assume there's a, there's a prize. Uh, can you tell us what, what the prize is for teams who win something like this? Yes, there's a prize, but what, what you mentioned, I think, is that it really allows graduate students that normally don't know much about f- research and pharmaceutical industry, it allows them to give a, get a first insight into pharmaceutical industry, develop a, like a network, right? So all the past participants, even though that w- all these people that went into industry, we are still connected, we are LinkedIn group. And so I think for me, the biggest prize is that you build such a big network of people all over the world and that, that you're connected to. And, and I think that's, that's the biggest prize of participating. In addition, yes, the, the group that wins is, wins also 20, I think it was $20,000, but yeah, the coach didn't get any money. It went all to the te- people of the team. Very cool. Great. Mm-hmm. All right. So, um, I have also like one follow-up question to the, uh, to the research. So, uh, or at least the, the potentials for the research. So when we're developing something for, you know, you mentioned that there's, um, the different circuits involved in mood disorders. I mean, they're, they're scattered around the brain, right? They're, they're different topographically. They can be, uh, in different places. Um, when you're talking about the biochemical differences, uh, between the areas. So, you know, uh, you can do uh, biochemical profiles on different cells and the cells can be different. But when it comes to, for example, drug development, you know, uh, an issue that we've hit on before is it's hard to develop a drug that's really specific, right? Um, everything has uh, uh, everything has side effects. So other than something like uh, just developing slightly more specific drugs or something like deep brain stimulation, do you see um, uh 
the therapies for mood disorders to uh, be going in any kind of novel direction that we haven't seen before? Yeah, so we actually, we had recently one project in the, in the lab where we studied the effects of chronic stress, not on the dopamine system, but on the lateral habenola circuitry. And so what we learned during this project is that when we thought a little bit more about depression and how chronic stress affects the brain, we realized, well, depression is such a complicated disease and there might not be a way, in the, at least in the near future, how when we will treat it in its entirety. But what might be able is to treat specific symptoms of depression because the, the big problem with depression is that, that there's enormous diversity of, of symptoms, right? But if we have a way of how we can identify specific neural circuit changes that are associated to specific symptoms, then at least we might find more specific treatments that target specific symptoms. And in, in the study, what we did is we combined really, we went from a circuit level, from identifying behavior all the way down to cellular changes, physiology and genetic changes using single cell transcriptomics. Then we identified candidate genes that are upregulated or downregulated. And what we're trying to do now is basically to use CRISPR-based approaches to manipulate these candidate genes and then see how this affects the circuitry the physiology and ultimately the behavior. So we thought this is a novel way of how we can think about depression research, basically, that we identify basically specific genes that are closely re related to uh, behavioral adaptations. And, and so, and yes, we, we are, we identified really a, a whole pipeline of interesting candidate genes and, and using strategies just as for example, CRISPR, we can now in a very effectively way uh, manipulate them, test them and see, do they play a specific role? Whether and whether these genes ultimately will lead to, to a treatment, and that's, as you correctly mentioned, it has a lot of implications. But, but I think it's, it's, it's a new and maybe more specific way of, of thinking about this. The interesting thing what we found in the study is that the candidate genes we identified, we could only identify them because we looked at specifically be identified behavioral phenotype. In the past, how research has been done, if, if researchers just compared stressed versus non-stressed animals, or in other words, depressed versus non-depressed animals, we would not have identified these genes. Only by associated, associating our research with closely defined behavioral phenotype, we are, were able to identify new candidate genes, which a regular analysis of stress versus non-stress would not have been shown up. So we don't know yet where this will take us, but, but we, we think it's a new way of thinking about this in, in basic research. Yeah. So you talk about depression as a set of symptoms and you know, different behavioral phenotypes and how different circuits can be involved in, in this. And from your project that you just mentioned, could you go into a little bit more detail in what one of these one of one of these circuits that are actually involved in creating this behavioral phenotype and what what is this phenotype even? Sure, of course, I'm happy to do this. So what we identified is a sub circuit within the, within the lateral habenular system. Basically, we identified a very specific input, which is from the entopedocular nucleus to a defined population of lateral habenular neurons, which specifically projects to the ventral tegmental area. 
And so what we found there is that this circuit in particular was only associated with changes in passing passive coping behavior or in other words, in deficits of motivated behavior. Surprisingly, no matter how we manipulated the circuit using optogenetics, chemogenetics, or, or just reading out activity in this, in the circuit using electrophysiology, we found that stress only influenced it in a way that it became altered in a behavior phenotype associated to deficits in motivated behavior, but never in other depression related symptoms such as anxiety or anhedonia. So, so that this was very interesting that we here have a brain circuit, which, which is particularly associated with one uh, behavioral deficit that is related to depression. All right. Well, I think uh, that's about, oh, we have, we have time for one more question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I kind of wanted to move away from the research for one mm -hmm. second. Uh, you did your master's and your PhD in Germany, and mm -hmm. I did my master's in Germany as well. Uh, and then you came to the U.S. for your postdoc, and now you're, uh, you know, a, a PI at UC Berkeley. So I'm curious, uh, do you see any striking differences in uh, the academic world, academic culture, lab culture, maybe between the U.S. and Germany? Uh, cell culture. Cell culture. <laughs> yeah, I get this question a lot. Uh, of course, particularly from people in Germany, right? So, and yes, it's a, and I, I thought about this question too a lot. And so I think each system individual has advantages and disadvantages. Uh, I liked the, and I decided to stay in the US because the system offers me a lot of resources and I can do really the research, uh, at least at UC Berkeley that I always dreamt of, that I always wanted to do really. So I, ha I have an enormous lab space. I have great people in my lab. And again, the advantage here in, in the US is that you meet people, especially in the Bay Area, that are from all over the world. So in my lab, I have people from Lithuania, from China, from, from Colombia. So people from all over the world work together in an environment and working on very important ideas. And, and I think this Germany is not there yet, really, that you get really this diversity of people, which, which I think is enormous beneficial and coming back to the innovation cup that where you really saw, saw that working in a very diverse team is, can bring up very new ways of thinking about a problem. And I experienced this also in Berkeley. So, and, and that's really what kept me into the Bay area that you are in this very innovative, fast paced environment where you can work on really on these big problems. And this was one reason why I decided to stay after my postdoc in, in, the, in the US and because it really offered me the possibility to continue the research I always wanted to do. I think this was a great pitch to you. Be a PI in the US. <laughs> America rules. <laughs> okay. Well, we are here at Max Planck in Florida. <laughs> That's right. Well, we're here at the melting pot between Germany and America. Exactly. So. Um, but thank you so much for, uh, for talking to us today. Uh, this is a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you. We had thank a great you so time much for having me. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast.